Author Larry Crabb once wrote, Many of us place top priority not on becoming Christ-like in the middle of our problems, but on finding happiness. I must firmly and consciously, by an act of my will, reject the goal of becoming happy and adopt the goal of becoming more like the Lord. I think if we're being honest, that statement's probably a little bit unsettling for most of us because, of course, uh, we all want to be happy, right? Yet I believe that statement to be true, and the reason I believe it to be true is because of the life that Jesus and his apostles modeled for us and the statements they made to that end. Right On the, on the threshold of being betrayed, abandoned, denied by his closest friends, unjustly arrested, mercilessly tortured, nailed to a Roman cross, and worst of all by far, the focal point of God's own wrath knowing that all of that was not only to be his fate, but imminently so. Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Mark 14, 34. And yet as you continue to read the story, you find Jesus not only not running away from his fate or trying to change his circumstances, but intentionally and purposefully embracing them. Listen, not because that's what made him happy. Obviously, he just said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So why then? Why in the world would you willingly pursue something that makes you so utterly unhappy? Well, it's because Jesus' primary goal in life wasn't to be happy. It was to be like the Father which is exactly what the Father wanted from Jesus. And by the way, it's exactly what he wants from us. You see, God's greatest desire for you is not for you to be happy. It's for you to be like Christ. In fact, Jesus said as much, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. In other words, you see what I'm doing. You should be doing the same thing, which means when it comes to choosing happiness or Christ-likeness, which aren't always the same, right? I mean, sometimes they are. Surely, some, sometimes doing uh, what makes us happy and doing what Jesus would do are the same thing, absolutely. But sometimes they're not the same. In fact, sometimes those two things couldn't be more different, just like they were different for Jesus when it came to the cross. And yet he chose to do what the Father wanted him to do instead of what would have made him happiest in that moment. And yet, listen, if we're being honest, how often when we are faced with the choice between doing what makes us happy and doing what makes us more like Christ when those two things aren't the same, how often do we choose happiness? And I'll just tell you, that the problem with living that way, among other things, is that our focus is constantly on our circumstances and other people's behavior instead of on Christ, because that's where we most often find immediate happiness, in favorable circumstances and in the behavior by other people that feeds our personal desires. And yet, whereas Christ is immovable and unchanging, our circumstances and, of course, other people's behavior are constantly changing, which means our happiness becomes a moving target, which is the very reason why so many Christians feel so unfulfilled, so unsatisfied with their lives, because what makes them feel happy on any given day changes like the weather. 
Okay, so what's the answer then? What's the remedy? Do we all then just resign ourselves to a life of mediocrity and misery? Well, of course not. Not at all. The answer is to fix our hearts and minds on something far deeper than feelings, something greater than happiness, something that never changes, because if you want satisfaction, fulfillment in your life that abides, that remains, even when your circumstances change, then your focus has to be on something that abides, something that doesn't change. That's why the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. You see, Paul came to understand that even though circumstances constantly change, there is a faith that never falters. There is a hope that never fades, and there is a love that never fails, which can only be found in Christ Jesus. And look, this is such a formative a truth in our development as disciples of Christ. In fact, this one bit of truth will actually transform your life overnight if you'll let it. Because instead of thinking to yourself, once my circumstances change or this other person's behavior changes for the better, then my life will be better, which I think is exactly how most of us think most of the time. Instead of focusing on what constantly changes, if you will fix your heart and mind on Jesus Christ, who never changes regardless of your circumstances or other people's behavior, well then your life begins to identify with his more than it does with those circumstances or those other people. And it's also when you begin to experience a satisfaction and a fulfillment that is infinitely deeper than the ever fleeting feelings of happiness. Okay, you understand I'm not down on happiness, and neither is Jesus. We all love to be happy. I certainly do, and that's good. But his word is very clear on the matter. Listen, he says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4. Happiness, okay, is great, and I'm all for it. But happiness is not God's greatest desire for you. What can only be found in Christ Jesus is. And of course, when your entire identity is wrapped up in Christ, well, then your life will necessarily begin to look like his. Listen, when you're happy, and even when you're not, and that's really the challenge for most of us because it's easy to act like Jesus when everything is going your way, but what about when everything is not going your way, right? It's not always so easy to act like Jesus when you're being uh, mistreated by someone else, is it? When your circumstances are anything but favorable. Or probably most of all, when getting what God wants means giving up what you want. But listen, those are the times when you actually identify with Christ the most. Because when you focus on him rather than yourself by giving up what you want in deference to what he wants. When, when of course, those two things aren't the same. Because that's exactly what Jesus and his apostles had to do. Right? Listen, when the biblical writers talk about suffering 
for the sake of Christ, the suffering they were referring to was as much or more about personal sacrifice as it ever was about persecution or martyrdom. But we always think about persecution and martyrdom when they talk about suffering, and certainly that's part of it, but not the lion's share. Because first of all, when you look at how they described having to die at the hands of others, those who were martyrs, it doesn't sound anything like the way they described having to die to themselves before they were martyred. Andrew, one of the 12 disciples of Christ, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. And after seven soldiers whipped him severely, they tied his body to that cross with cords in order to prolong his death in agony. And yet later his followers reported that when he was led toward that cross, he saluted it and said, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. Early church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, that he actually requested to be crucified on an inverted cross because he did not consider himself worthy to die as Jesus had. And of course, the Apostle Paul famously said from prison, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Philippians 1.21, those early disciples, listen, they were not afraid of death. Indeed, they longed for it. To be with Christ Jesus once again was something they looked forward to. So what was the suffering, the tribulation they so often spoke of having to endure with patience? It was the suffering that was and is part and parcel with self-denial, self-sacrifice, the laying down of yourself in this life for others. I would submit to you that it's far more difficult than even martyrdom. Later, in the same letter to the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul describes all of his accomplishments before he came to Christ. He talks about all of the respect and honor and religious pedigree and status and power that he had gained in this world before Christ. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in this world, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, 4 through 6. And yet look at how the same man describes having to give all of that up. Verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says he suffered the loss of all things. What things, Paul? He just told us the respect and honor and religious pedigree and status and power and influence that he'd gained in this world before Christ. So in the same letter, Paul describes dying at the hands of others as gain, but dying to himself for others as suffering. Why? Because it's infinitely harder to embrace the idea of dying to yourself, which is something you decide to do, than it is to embrace the idea of being martyred at the hands of others, which is something someone else decides to do. Right? If someone walks in the door and says, deny Christ or I'm going to kill you, well, you know what? Go ahead and shoot me in the face and I'll just go be with Jesus. 
but tell me I have to lay down what I want to do today and tomorrow and the day after in deference to what Jesus wants me to do? Now, now that's a different conversation. It's much harder to do. And of course, as you continue reading the story of Jesus facing his own crucifixion, he prayed, Abba, Father. There's an intimate name for the Father. All things are possible for you. This is Jesus. Remove this cup from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. Do you understand? At times, even Jesus had to give up what he wanted for the sake of what the Father wanted. And clearly, it didn't make him happy. He was sorrowful even unto death. But you see, Jesus and his disciples, they understood that identifying with the Father was better than being happy with their circumstances when those two things were not the same. Because ultimately, and here's the key, they knew that God was working all of it. At the end of the day, they knew that God was working all of it, the good days and the bad days, the happy times and the hard times, the favorable circumstances and the really difficult ones. He was working all of it together for their good, just like he does for you and for me when our lives are in Christ Jesus more than they are in anything else. So last week we started talking about what that looks like, right, in our daily lives. The fact that the, the way we identify with Jesus, if you're keeping an outline, point one was through the spirit of Christ and then through the suffering of Christ. And yet that's just the first half of the story, as we'll see as we finish the second half of this sermon today, as we continue to work our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, where we find, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So let's turn there where we left off last week in Romans chapter 8 and see what exactly it is that we gain in Christ Jesus as our lives identify more and more and more with his. Romans chapter 8 where we stopped last time at verse 18. We'll read through verse 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
So again, in the first half of the chapter, Paul's clear about the fact that one of the chief ways our lives are identified with Christ is through suffering. And as he continues here, he recognizes the fact that we're living in a troubled world, right? That's not a newsflash to any of you, I'm sure. We're in a fallen world which the Christian is not immune to. And so, of course, there's suffering that is the direct result of our sinning. Right? There's suffering when we choose to die to ourselves, as we mentioned already. There's suffering uh, when we endure for Christ's sake, suffering that arises directly from our Christian profession in a world that rejects Christ. And then, of course, there's suffering that arises simply because we are in an imperfect world along with everyone else. So there's no reason to believe that Christians will be free from the troubles or pain that often comes with living in a fallen world which, by the way, has affected uh, all of creation along with humanity. As we read, uh, we read in Genesis, when Adam sinned, the entire created world was subjected to futility, as Paul says here. Things like thorns and thistles that were to accompany our work in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Of course, the pain in childbirth for the woman in Genesis 3, 16. And here, as Paul says, all of creation was groaning with the pains of childbirth. And the repeated refrain that all is vanity in Ecclesiastes, where, interestingly, by the way, it was reading in the Septuagint, the uh, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, it uses the same Greek word here that's used for futility in place of vanity in Ecclesiastes because, of course, the original creation in Genesis 1 and 2 did not have all of these effects from sin. And so encompassing, uh, so encompassing are the effects of sin. Again, there's no reason to believe that as Christians we'll be free from the troubles or pain that often comes with living in a fallen world in spite of the belief, by the way, that many Christians hold that we can avoid all of the ill effects of sin in this world as long as we have enough faith, we should never have to suffer anything. That's actually an argument that it just simply doesn't hold water scripturally. However, and it's a big however, despite our suffering that will inevitably come at times in our lives, there is reason for an even greater hope, as Paul now begins to explain the rest of the story. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, when your life is in Christ Jesus, you identify with him not only through the Spirit of Christ and the suffering of Christ, but also through the glory of Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is an incredibly encouraging and hopeful statement. In other words, yes, you're going to experience suffering at times in this life, but when your life is in Christ Jesus, all of your suffering combined cannot compare to the glory that is to come and indeed is coming even now, at least in part, as we're going to see. And so Paul says, even though we may now have to suffer for a little while, don't lose hope. Because the path of suffering is also the path to glory. Paul sets these sufferings over against the coming glory by saying they're not worth even 
comparing with it, as bad, as troublesome as they are to us who are experiencing them, they are of no weight when set over against the glory that awaits God's people, which, of course, Paul talks about elsewhere when he speaks of this light momentary affliction, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And of course, the glory that Paul talks about here looks forward. Certainly, it looks forward to the resurrection of the body, also mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and also to the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, 1 and 22, 5, also Isaiah 65, 17. So uh, look, without a doubt, there's a future glory that nothing on this earth, good or bad, could ever compare to. However, there's even more good news for us now, today, because Paul says this glory will be revealed. He doesn't say it's going to be created. In other words, the glory Paul's talking about is not something that has yet to be created, that has yet to exist. It already exists now, today. It simply isn't fully apparent yet, fully revealed in our own lives, and yet it is being revealed in our lives in the here and now, as we just read in 2 Corinthians. We are being transformed. It's an ongoing process now. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so for those who are in Christ Jesus, we do have a taste of the glory now that Paul is describing for those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so what we have now is very real. It's not the whole. As the Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. This is the tension throughout Paul's theology that's often referred to as the now and not yet. And so the foretaste of the glory of Christ that we have now leads us to look forward, or it should, with eager longing to the completion of what God has already begun in us. It's why the apostles were were able to say, you're going to kill me? Bring it on. I'm ready. But listen, just because the fullness of God at work in us has yet to be fully revealed today, we don't have to hunker down until then and hold our breath and hope we make it while we wait for God to return and then maybe do amazing, mighty, supernatural things in our lives. No, because we who are in Christ Jesus today, we already have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of Christ working in us and through us now. Listen, especially in our suffering. Paul said the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's the glory of the Spirit of God at work in us through the struggles of life. And honestly, honestly, I don't know how people who don't have Christ do it. I don't know how they do it. I can't imagine navigating this life without the Spirit of God leading me through it. Without Him. Paul says we don't even know how to pray or what to ask for when we pray, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As John Knox puts it, our needs go far beyond the power of our speech to express them. And so he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, how? According to the will of God, Paul says. And listen, here's Here's why that matters. 
Because God, listen, he always answers the requests of the Spirit in the affirmative. Because the Spirit always and only prays in accord with God's will. This is why it's so important that we pray in the Spirit, focused on Him and what He wants, rather than being focused on ourselves and what we want. Right? Because when we pray according to the Spirit, it's guaranteed that we're praying according to His will. And when we pray according to His will, we're guaranteed to receive whatever it is we ask for. I didn't make that up. That's a good place for a big amen, amen. for yourself. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. It's also why Paul was able to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because the first fruits of the Spirit are working in us. Not just someday down the road when Jesus returns to right the wrongs in this world, but right now for all those who are found in Christ Jesus. And as a result, we are together being conformed to the image of his Son. An ongoing work happening right now. Our lives are identified with Christ through the glory of Christ at work in us today. 19th century Anglican Bishop C.J., excuse me, J.C. Ryle once said, he that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. And I would say especially when we pray. Let's finish this part of the letter, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What then shall we say to these things? In spite of all the talk about suffering, Paul is clear. We have the Spirit of Christ not only in us, but actively at work in us and through us, and maybe best of all, for us. He's working all things together for our good. For those who are in Christ Jesus, he is continually working for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
<laughs> in all this tough stuff, the suffering, the hardship that we're all bound to face at times in this world, listen, in all of it, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ is working in us and for us. Do you get that? I mean, do you understand? God is for you. God is for you. Paul quotes Psalm 4.22 here. As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He quotes that passage to make the point that, look, God's people always have and always will encounter opposition and suffering at times in this world, this side of heaven. But it's okay because no matter what you may ever face in this life, Paul says God is for you. And if God is for you, well, who can be against you? And do you know why God is for you? It's not because you've earned it or you deserve it. No, he's for you simply because he loves you. In spite of the fact that you could never earn it or deserve it, it's yet another way that Paul says our lives are identified with Jesus through the love of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love. Love for one another, John 13, 35. In other words, the way that people who are not in Christ will know that you are in Christ is the way that you love each other. So how are we to love one another? With the same unfailing love that he has for us. It's a love that cannot be overcome by this world or the suffering in this world or the difficult circumstances that we face in this world for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, whatever's happening in your life right now or things to come, whatever happens to you tomorrow, there's no power, there's no height, there's no depth, there is nothing in all of this world or creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus loves us with a love that never fails or falters. It never gives up, even when we want to. It's a love that never quits when the going gets hard. It never walks away, even when we don't get what we want. Because the source of his love was the Father, not other people or any other uh, circumstances or anything people would do to him. And so the question is, really what we need to ask today, is can you say the same yourself do you love people the way that Jesus loves you or is your love for other people contingent upon the way they treat you is your love for other people dependent upon their actions how well they love you back is your love for other people reliant upon how they live or what they're like is your love for other people loaded with conditions because look, if it is, and, and if you can admit that to yourself, then listen, the, the source of your love isn't Christ alone. No, it's actually based on other people's performance. Now, what if Jesus loved us based on the same criteria? How well would you fare? How much of his love do you deserve? 
What depth of love have you earned? I don't know about you, but if Jesus decided to love us based on the same criteria most of us use to love others, then I'd be in deep trouble. Because I haven't earned it and I surely don't deserve it. The truth is, our immediate response to this world should always be to love first. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Love God first and then others as yourself. In fact, Jesus said on these two commandments, depend all the law and prophets. It's all summed up in love. Matthew twenty two forty. Fortunately for us, Jesus doesn't love us the way most of us love other people because the source of his love is the Father, not other people or anything other people would ever do to him. Which means Christ's love for you is not based on how well you can perform for him. You hear me? You cannot earn his love. You will never deserve his love. And by the way, there's no way you can ever revoke his love for you. He loves you with a love that never fails. You understand, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was given by him. He could have called down legions of angels from heaven at any moment and put a stop to the false accusations and the denials and the mockery and the beatings, all of it, but he didn't. Why? I mean, surely none of that was making him happy. Of course not. It had nothing to do with his personal happiness and everything to do with his unfailing love, love for the very people who were betraying him and abandoning him and denying him. What people? The disciples? The religious Jews? The Romans? You? And me, there's love for you. It isn't based on what you've done. It's based on who he is. And because unlike this world and the circumstances we face in this world that are constantly changing, Jesus never changes, which means his love for you never changes. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with right now. His love for you is unchanged because he never changes. C.S. Lewis once said, though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. And I'm just telling you, this one bit of truth will transform your life overnight if you'll let it. Instead of thinking to yourself, once my circumstances change or this other person's behavior changes for the better, then my life will be better. Then my faith will be stronger. Then I'll have hope. Then I'll be able to love people the way I want to. In other words, once I'm happy about my circumstances and this other person's behavior in my life, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be fulfilled. Which I think whether we want to admit it or not, is exactly how most of us think probably most of the time. 19th century Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond once said, to become Christ-like is the only thing in the whole world worth caring for, the thing before which every ambition of man is folly and all lower achievement vain. 
You see, instead of focusing on what makes us happy, which constantly changes, if instead you will fix your heart and mind on what can only be found in Christ Jesus, who never changes, listen, you will discover a new kind of satisfaction, a new kind of fulfillment in your life that is infinitely deeper than the fleeting feelings of happiness that we so often chase after. And I'm telling you, it'll change your life overnight. Because what satisfies and fulfills you will no longer be dependent upon circumstances or other people. And the result is, your life almost immediately becomes richer, fuller, deeper, because you begin to experience a depth of love for people that isn't dependent upon their behavior anymore. And an unfading hope, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of your life, it's there. And listen, you understand, that's the life God wants for you. Far more than he wants you to be happy, he wants you to be whole. And there's only one place for that wholeness to be found. In Christ Jesus. Let's pray.